Michael, are you celebrating anything special today? Only another Saturday here with you and our listeners. That sounds like a very fine reason to enjoy the latest release from Veuve Clicquot. Its new vintage, La Grande Dame 2012, is delicious and it looks as good as it tastes. Thanks to the iconic Japanese artist, Yayoi Kusama, who created original artwork for the bottle. Kusama's vibrant and cheerful design is an homage to the Grand Dame of Champagne, Madame Clicquot, who took over the production of Maison Clicquot Champagne back in 1805 after her husband died. It's a beautiful way to celebrate any and every occasion. La Grande Dame 2012, the newest vintage from Veuve Clicquot. Happy Saturday. It's May 29th, 2021, Memorial Day weekend, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Happy Memorial Day. Ashley, how do you like your burgers done? Medium rare, medium well. Ooh, medium rare. American cheese, potato roll done. You want your roll toasted? I'm just getting going here on the grill. Please do. All right. I'll be having for you in a minute. Don't mind me. All right, good. We hope that everyone is having a great, fun, outdoorsy weekend listening to us. And we are so happy that you are here to get your weekend started with Michael and I. It's been quite a week, Michael, and we've had a lot of fun in the airmail universe. We're calling it the summer of airmail, by the way, in our internal meetings. Okay, cool. I like that. You're involved in all those cool marketing meetings. I think that's good. So then I, that's how I learn all this lingo. Michael, what are your plans for this holiday weekend? I'm grilling a hamburger for you right now right out here in Montauk. Michael, did you hear there's an Il Buco that is opening up in Amagansett this summer? What? I know. So there's like somewhere between Montauk and East Hampton, there's a perfect place of a perfect bowl of spaghetti carbonara waiting for me. Indeed there is. Wow. You know what? I'm just going to leave these burgers here right here and let them burn. I'm just, I got to get in the car and go. <laughs> I do not doubt that you make a pretty tasty burger and I look forward to enjoying it. What are your plans, dear? Same. A lot of good books to read. We have For Better or For Worse. For Better. Okay, it's For Better. Our fearless, fabulous books editors at Airmail have given us quite a few assignments in terms of summer reading. So I'm getting on that this weekend. Might go paddleboarding, might go to the beach, hang out with friends. Oh, you know what I did, Michael? I just ordered a projector and an outdoor movie screen to watch films at night and probably get eaten alive by ticks. But that's another part of the story. Wow, that's so like Cinema Paradiso. Mm-hmm. Best summer ever. Best summer ever. That sounds fun. What's going to raise the curtain on the season? Cabaret, Liza Minnelli. Per your suggestion, by the way, because after watching Halston, I've now watched the whole season twice and now it's Liza time. It's always Liza time. <laughs> well, shall we dive on into this issue, Michael? Let's go. Where do you want to take me? <sighs> what a long week it's been. I mean, I had a lot of stories that I was editing in this issue. And so you just tell me which one you want to start with. Along those lines, we've also seen an incredible outpouring of new store openings. But we have a great piece in the issue, a close-up of a guy named Daniel Emilio Soares, who's a fourth-generation member of the Balducci family. They operate a lot of really beautiful grocery stores here in the city. And Daniel's opening a new high-quality produce market in the middle of Little Italy called Alimentari Flaneur. And it, the pictures are gorgeous, Michael. I haven't been yet, but I can't wait to go check it out. Yeah, it's it's the kind of place that looks like it stepped into that void left by the departure of the fabled Dean and DeLuca. 
which was that sort of temple of, started that whole food temple store in the 80s when it opened up down in Soho there. And where I worked briefly. You worked there? Yeah, I worked in the produce department back in the day. No way. I loved that store. It was such a cool, like if you were shopping for groceries at Dean and DeLuca on Broadway and Prince, you had officially made it. I may have even weighed your fruits or vegetables for you. <laughs> I love that. One of my friends there, I, it, it was, this is probably a non sequitur, but he used to buy his pet bird, Belgian Endive, from the Dina DeLuca. And to me, it was the most extravagant of all things. Uh, that was the first place I learned what that people could grill portobello mushrooms. Like what? People would come in and buy <laughs> like portobello mushroom steaks or whatever they call them. Anyway, you know where you're not going to see some fancy food probably? So it's a Memorial Day weekend, as we've mentioned. And another Alex, Alex Thomas, has a funny piece in the issue this week. And this is a sort of like, what, is, what does the president usually do? The president always goes away from the long weekend. And we have this sort of tradition in America where our president is sort of decompressed near the ocean. Kennedy had Hyannisport. Obama had Hawaii and Martha's Vineyard. Trump had Palm Beach. But Joe Biden's summer home much to the consternation of the press corps that has to travel there and cover him while he's on vacation, is Rehoboth, Delaware. He's got a little, little town, little town of Rehoboth Beach down in, as, as they call, the far south of Delaware. And Alex Thomas, who wrote it, was for three summers when he was younger, lifeguard there. So he's got a sort of fun look at the town that now everyone's going to have to go to. Not nearly as glamorous like the same as Martha's Vineyard. The Bidens will probably be at their favorite restaurant, which is Finn's Fish House in Raw Bar. So, so you know, but as he says, it's a little more, little more Jersey Shore than North Shore. So it's better than Mar-a-Lago, right? More real. Anything is better than Mar-a-Lago, Michael. And I'm, it doesn't take too much to get better than Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> Neither. So Catherine Fairweather has written a marvelous piece for us about Bruton, which is a town in Somerset that I had frankly not heard all that much about. And Catherine is giving me a major case of FOMO. According to her, she has reported and reported and reported, and she's been living in Bruton for quite some time. And she talks about how this town has become the hotspot for the toast of London, especially during the pandemic. There's just a lot, an awful lot of cool stuff happening. Great stores from former Vogue editors, incredible restaurants from Michelin starred chefs. So a lot to do and a lot to see and definitely a place we should be going this summer. Do people there have tattoos? Unclear. My guess is no, but who knows? You can never be too sure. Seems like everyone has a tattoo these days, Michael, except for us. Except for us. Do you want to get one? No. I mean, I went through a period of time in my early 20s when I considered it and then ultimately decided against it. And it's a good thing because I would have a really idiotic Gertrude Stein quote right now on my wrist. Well, you know what? There is a company in Clementine Ford, one of our writers and editors here, has a very funny story this week. It's about the made-to-fade tattoo parlor, which is, she says, it sort of offers you a chance to get inked without risk of turning into a Pete Davidson doppelganger. So it's called Ephemeral, and it's the world's first made-to-fade tattoo shop, as I said. It just opened in, where else, of all places, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was started by two guys, one, Josh Sakai, he's a 24-year-old co-founder. He grew up in a Jewish-Persian family, which, of course, forbids tattoos. But he was always sort of thinking when he was at NYU with his friend of his, Josh Louis, like, tattoos are kind of cool. But what do you do if you want one and you want the ink to fade? So he spent six years, went through 50 formulations, and he came up with ink that disappears over time. So fades in about 12 to 14 months. So it's the perfect solution for commitment folks. Like, you want to get a tattoo? Try it out. 
but you don't want to be looking like you got that Gertrude Stein quote that's going to embarrass you, right? <laughs> if you were to get a tattoo today, Michael, what would it be? Thug life. <laughs> I don't know. I always think of my friend Rory and it goes back to what you said. She some years ago was like, okay, I'll, you know, with some friends, like I'm going to get a tattoo. And she thought, of course, she always thinking ahead. She comes and she shows me and she had a down near her ankle, had a small rocking chair tattooed near her ankle. And I said, what is that? What, what do you mean a small rocking chair? And she said, because if I live to become a grandmother and I'm sitting there one day, I want my grandkids to see an age appropriate tattoo on their grandmother, not like something inane. So there it is. Huh. Okay. That's one way to look at it, Michael. Yeah. I don't know what I would get. I would maybe get somewhere. Maybe the morning meeting <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> Never appealed to me. Never was on the list of, I got to do that. No, no. I mean, I'm always trying to improve my body in other ways, mostly through yoga, Pilates, occasionally a bit of swimming, but I've never been tempted by the art of the ink. No, to put the pin to the skin. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, moving on to other matters, pressing matters at that. What else do we have in this glorious issue? Speaking of London, you know what is, and I'm, I don't think you can show this film at your outdoor theater yet on the projection screen. This year's most stylish film starring Emma Stone and another Emma, Emma Thompson, who are facing off in Cruella, the prequel to the Cruella Deville story and they sort of face off in 1970s London as kind of this moment where punk meets couture. Michael, this film is clearly going to be a thing because I have been hearing about it not only from my fashion friends, but also from my friends in the food universe. And the pastry chef at the Lanesboro Hotel in London has created an entire afternoon tea concept around Cruella. If you're going to be missing your Halston moments and, and your high fashion moments on screen, this is the film for you. Plus you get Emma Stone. What's not to like with Emma Stone? There's nothing not to love about Emma Stone. Nothing. Exactly. I'm Team Emma. So, oh, please. Who isn't? Let's take a break for a brief lesson in the history of champagne. Michael, what can you tell me about Madame Clicquot? Funny you should ask. She was one of the original innovators in the realm of champagne. All the way back in 1805, she took the reins of Maison Clicquot following the death of her husband. She was a risk taker and completely uncompromising when it came to maintaining the highest possible quality of her wines. She was also known for perfecting new innovations and expanding Veuve Clicquot's reach into all corners of the world. Today, her name is synonymous with excellence, and she is remembered as the Grand Dame of Champagne. And like Madame Clicquot, Yoyoy Kusama is a trailblazer in her field. She entered the art world at 28 and once said, I promised myself that I would conquer New York and make my name in the world with my passion for the arts and my creative energy. To celebrate the house's new vintage, La Grand Dame 2012, Kusama created a new design for its bottle and gift box that makes smart use of her polka dots to represent champagne bubbles. And as for the wine itself? It expresses Veuve Clicquot's love of Pinot Noir, which represents over 90% of the blend. As Madame Clicquot said, our black grapes give the finest white wines. It tastes as beautiful as it looks. La Grand Dame is a showcase of the house's excellence. Madame Clicquot and Yoyo Kusama lived 150 years apart, but they still created an unforgettable collaboration. That alone is worthy of a celebration. All right, Michael. Well, we have an extremely special guest today. Someone we've had in the airmail universe since way even before launch. Our stylish, literary, 
and very fun senior editor, Julia Vitale, who's here to talk about summer reading, everyone's favorite topic. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Julia, you're our book czar. You oversee it with Jim Kelly. (laughs) I don't know what's so funny, but that's true. So I'm excited to have you. I just want to say that too. Me too. I'm excited to be here to talk about summer books. Yeah. Julia, all right, let's just get get right to the heart of the matter. How many books do you read a week and how many galleys come through your inbox? Because I think we have the best book section in all of the United States. And Michael agrees and Graydon agrees and Alessandra agrees. So you need to tell us how you guys make this magic happen every week. Well, that's very kind. No, we definitely split, Jim and I split the work, just like reading when we can, going through mostly on PDFs on our computer, which is so boring, but then books for pleasure, obviously, galleys or finished copies. It's really fun. For those of you listening at home, this is Julia excited. (laughs) This is Julia with her usual modesty. So anyway, Julia, you do a tremendous amount of work and to pull it all together, not just the books coverage, but our arts coverage as well. So along with Laura Jacobs. So you make all of us smarter here. Well, thank you. It's honestly a blast. So anyway, so talking about books, I feel like this is one, the first one that I wanted to talk about was one that I've recommended to you guys before. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. It's called Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. I feel like you know a book about robots is worth picking up when it manages to resonate with your 90-year-old grandma, which is what happened to me. She hounded me until I read it. And unsurprisingly, I was totally moved by it. If there's one writer working today who can make a story about robots feel universal to humans, I feel like it's Kazuo Ishiguro, who's like totally different books from the futuristic Never Let Me Go to the quintessentially British remains of the day all kind of accomplished this. Uh, Yeah, I remember you told me about this and and I was excited to to read it because I admit I had never read Anishiguru until last summer when I picked up Never Let Me Go. And I remember you and I talking about just how that book lingered in our minds. So taking your awesome advice as always, I'm getting this one. Yeah, and it's his first one since winning the Nobel in 2017. And it's just so good and like so different from Never Let Me Go, but also kind of very him. So it's just a great one for this summer. Okay, you're one for one so far. Julia, do you have anything a little bit lighter for those of us that want something escapist by nature? I do, Ashley. I feel like this is the summer book everyone is talking about, which is called The Other Black Girl by Zakia Dalila Harris. It's a debut novel by a former assistant editor at Knopf Doubleday, loosely based on her own experiences as a Black woman navigating a predominantly white workplace. It's an indictment of the publishing industry, which doesn't take itself too seriously. And it also takes a sort of get out turn into horror, which is kind of fun and unexpected. And the publishers clearly weren't offended because it sold at auction to Atria for more than a million dollars. And Hulu had signed on to produce a TV adaptation whose pilot Harris is writing with Rashida Jones. So not bad for a debut. Harris is just 28. Uh, really makes me rethink my career, but that's another story. And this one is publishing on June 1st. So this Tuesday. Huh. All right. I'm downloading that on the Kindle. Immediatamente. Highly recommend. Yes. And then one that is maybe a little nerdier, but 
is just so good. It's called The Irish Assassins by Julie Kavanaugh. It's a book about the late 19th century Phoenix Park murders that stunned Victorian England. The murders were funded by American supporters of Irish independence, and the book does help like parse through the whole subject of Irish independence, which I find to be hugely confusing even after all this time. But what makes it good is that it truly reads like fiction. Like it's suspenseful. It touches on unforgettable characters you've never heard of, such as John Mallon, the Irish Sherlock Holmes. And it reveals all these juicy details, such as Queen Victoria's weird obsession with assassination. This one publishes on August 3rd and is available for pre-order. So something to look forward to for a bit later in the summer. Yeah, I like that because it's, I mean, for I think for people who are fans of period fiction and like to be transported to another time and place. This guy has all those elements, right? All those elements and it's it's all real. So it's even better. Even better. Who knew Queen Victoria liked assassins? <laughs> I know, the things you learn. And then I guess just like a bonus for looking forward into fall and it's going to be what I'm thinking about all summer. Sally Rooney's latest book, Beautiful World, Where Are You? For those who missed her previous two books, Conversations with Friends and Normal People. This is one of those authors who captures the high and low. Like there was a moment where I felt like everyone on the subway on the way to work was reading her books. They were on every book club list, but Normal People was also long listed for the Man Booker Literary Prize. And I got a TV adaptation. Again, all before Rooney turned 30, trying not to question again career choices. Anyway, Rooney's latest novel is publishing in early September. So this one is one I'm very excited about. What's it about? What's it about? So I just started reading it. But it's confidential. It's, oh, okay. It, it's more in the same of her previous two. So it, there, there's love and it's like people, like millennials in Ireland and it's really good. So something to be excited about. I was going to say, Juliet, did anyone actually miss the first two books by Sally Rooney or the Hulu series that normal people inspired? Because to me, she feels like the most, one of the most prominent novelists of her generation. Can you give us some context about sort of her place in the canon? So it's funny you ask that because it it did feel, they, the books when they came out did feel everywhere, but then there will still be people who I'm just like, I'll pull out the book and they won't ha- won't know her and i think it's because she's irish and maybe like i don't know i mean they were huge in the u.s but I- that's the only explanation i can think of but anyway she was just kind of this literary force who broke onto the scene a few years ago and just really killed it at like capturing the ethos of people in their late 20s, early 30s, not just in Ireland, clearly, because people in the US loved it. But the TV adaptation did a good job of that too. Like, yeah, it was set in Ireland, but it really felt like it could have been set anywhere. And I feel like that's more and more true for younger generations as they're growing up with the internet, because no matter where you are, you're like all looking at, I don't know, Instagram, TikTok. And there is this just like connective tissue that there maybe wasn't for earlier generations and growing up in different places. So even though this was like very Irish, but also very universal and like everyone loves a love story. So I don't know. I think that's why they were so good. I haven't read either of the books. Two questions. The first one's a yes or no. Okay, your grandmother made you read the new Ishiguru book. Will you make your grandmother read the new Sally Rooney book? Yes, but I don't know how successful it's going to be. 
I mean, I think Kazuo Ishiguro is like already a stretch. So we'll see how this one goes. But I'll definitely try. Why not? So, you know, I think you and you and Sally are Rooney are basically the same age. Why do you think that she's resonates so much and, and, and has become uh, so popular with 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 your 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 generation? First of all, she talks kind of frankly and unapologetically, but also not too just like overkill about issues like mental health. And she doesn't shy away from like awkward sex scenes and just like, you know, it feels like what people my age want to be reading. But I do think like it, the books resonate with people outside of my generation as well. I mean, I've spoken to people from of all different ages and, and they've liked the books as well for different reasons. So I think people get different things out of them. There's also just the fact that like kind of what I was saying about like the fact that people are reading it at a really like mass level where you just see the books everywhere. But then it was also long listed for a major literary prize. Like I feel like she's kind of getting at like a bit of the high and low that like people like. Yeah, I think she also... Julia has a great sort of, I like her approach to internet culture. I feel like she has sort of a less predictable stance on it. Yeah. And she's kind of just like, she's like a millennial who's like fairly media shy and just wants to be a serious writer. There's just a, there's a, a bit of contradiction that's just like pleasant to come across. Ashley, did you read the books? Did you like them? Yeah, I loved them. I loved them. And I loved the Hulu series too. I loved the Hulu series. I was also lucky enough to read the books before like all the hype happened. So I I was just able to like enjoy them for what they were. I feel like she got bigged up so much that maybe the expectations were too high for people who just came to her too late. So I feel lucky to have read them when I did then. I think that's one of the enviable parts of your job, Julia, is you do get those cold reads, the opportunity without having coming to something with expectations. And, and I'm sure what a, what a pleasure it is. Again, so grateful to have you because you, your gut and your heart tells you immediately like, this is this earns its place. It's not just been something that's been spun to you. So totally. It's such a pleasure. I mean, I love book reviews and, and I work on them all week long, but there's really something to be said for coming to a book with just like totally blind, just picking it up and being like, oh, who's Sally Rooney? And then being so pleasantly surprised. So, Julia, we want to talk to you about how you pair a writer with a review. How do you and Jim do this? What makes a good reviewer for a particular book? This is like the best part of the job. I feel like it's just comes from reading. Like we often, or for the most part, we choose reviewers who are also authors. And, um, and like sometimes the choice is really obvious. Maybe a writer has written on a similar topic before as an expert on that topic. But what's even more fun is just like choosing, you know, happening to talk, uh, happening to talk to a writer who has like a weird affinity for something totally random and then pairing them with a book, uh, having them review a book on that kind of like quirky passion of theirs. So you could have gotten like back in the day, I would have said, Julia, maybe you can get Queen Victoria to review that new movie. <laughs> exactly. And, and we could have gotten, with a lot of begging, we could have gotten her to do it. But no, we've, we've had a lot of, a lot of fun working with writers on, on reviews. 
just like off the top of my head, like, I don't know, having Simon Callow, who I feel like people know for the most part for his TV and stage stuff, writing reviews on, yes, theater, but also just random history that he's passionate about and brings that kind of like stage presence, passion to the review for me is incredible. Yeah, what I think works well with so many reviews, I think fail when they don't give that context or when you feel the the writer doesn't have a level of authority or in in order to sort of comment on the book but i think so many of the people that you got you and jim find and assigned to you can feel the knowledge they're bringing to it which makes it a deeper read of the book yeah and i think also just i find it so like i feel like people don't think about what it takes to to do a review like it's not just like a regular piece or even just like a movie review where you watch the movie and then you write the review like Bethany McLean just reviewed like a that 700 page Sackler book for example like that takes getting through 700 pages of Sackler stuff and then writing an amazing review it takes dedication so it's admirable all right Julia well you've given us a lot of homework here it's not homework, Ashley. This is this is pleasure. This is pleasure reading. It's, this is the escape from homework. Fair enough. Fair enough. I get book FOMO and now I feel like I need to get this, get all these guys stacked up on my nightstand and get get to work. Julie, I think we're going to have to have you back maybe midsummer, maybe 4th of July when, you know, it's when we're, when we're heading into the back half of the summer and update people on the reading they should be watching out for then. Would you come back? I'd love nothing more. That sounds amazing. You have no choice anyway, so. <laughs> we know where to find you. Exactly. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much to Julia. And please, not only should you guys be reading our books coverage religiously, but also subscribe to our book report newsletter, which is full of all of the, do we call it a newsletter, Julia? What do we call it? Yeah, it's, it's a newsletter that goes to your inbox every Thursday at 4 p.m. And tell us a little bit about what's in that. Is our go-to place for all book stuff. So it's stuff that ran in the Saturday issue, stuff that is just running that Thursday, a few of our favorite reviews from the British papers. It's really like our go-to books newsletter. And I highly suggest it. Just like to keep up with who's reading what and what you should be reading. Yeah, and I love it that you said it has also just not just what you get in the Saturday edition, but there's exclusives in it as well. So another reason to sign up for it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you, Julia. We will see you very soon and happy reading, everyone. Thank you so much. Ashley? Yeah, we. Hey, it's holiday weekend. People looking for things to do. They can't all come over to your special outdoor theater (laughs) and watch films with you and, and the kids. So, What can you recommend that they can do without you? Well, I'm going to recommend an article in another publication, but it's written by one of our own, James Wolcott. Michael, did you have a chance to read his piece on Philip Roth in the London Review of Books? I did. uh, A tour de force. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, this once again reminds us why Jim is, for our money, the foremost cultural critic of his generation. It's nearly 9,000 words, Michael, um, but he reviews and discusses three books about Philip Roth, which is the first being the biography by Blake Bailey that has encountered a tremendous amount of controversy and has been pulled by its publisher. The second is Philip Roth, A Counterlife by Ira Nadel. And the third is Here We Are, My Friendship with Philip Roth by Benjamin Taylor. And Jim's referendum on the guy's career and work and the way that he has been considered in literary history 
I think it's essential reading for any Roth fan and also for any student of American letters. Yeah, it's also essential reading if you just, the art of criticism, people don't understand what it is and how good it can be when it's in the hands of someone like Jim. And I think there's a lot of criticizing that happens. I think it's been reduced because of social media. But to bring to bear your intelligence and then the context, contextualization of an artist and on top of that or with that, also beautiful, smart, insightful, witty phrases and writing. And you see how you marshal an entire idea, criticism around something. This is, if you want to know how to write criticism, read this piece because it's so good. It's called Sisyphus at the Selectric by James Wolcott, London Review of Books. It was published on May 20th. You can find it online, lrb.co.uk. It's kind of like a book, Michael. I mean, it is just about 9,000 words. So it'll take up a, a good portion of your weekend, but it's worth every minute. I have one book to recommend, Michael. And... Are you familiar with Lori Colwin? Yes, familiar. Tell me more. Well, Lori Colwin is my idea of a summer read. I mean, she writes ultimately optimistic books about New Yorkers and the small dramas and traumas of family life in the 1980s. And she was really brilliant. And she also wrote a great book about cooking that I love that Richard David Story actually gave me. I had never read it before. But anyway, I just downloaded on my handy Kindle happy all the time, which was one of her marvelous novels. But if you're looking for a little bit of a nostalgic summer read about, you know, upper crust New Yorkers in the 1980s, it's really, her writing is just so vivid and fun. And it's a pleasure to live in her world for a couple of hours at a time. So that's been getting me through the last few weeks or the last few days. Nice. It's a quick read actually, but a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Good to know. All right, Michael, what do you have for us? Okay. I have two things. One, I told you last week about the new sculpture, on the west side of New York and Hudson River by David Hammonds, which opened about two weeks ago. Last week, we had the opening right next to it of what's officially known as Little Island and unofficially known as Diller Island after Barry Diller. And it is a new park that was built into the Hudson River on these beautiful tulip-like concrete things that have sort of morphed and rise at different heights. It's quickly become, I think, the go-to park to see and be seen. It's got an amphitheater. It's got winding paths. Can't recommend it enough, but just be warned. You need a ticket to get in it because it's a timed ticket to enter because can't have all of Manhattan coming onto this little island. But really beautiful, a lovely Lovely, lovely addition to the west side of lower Manhattan. So I recommend that. Nice place to go this Memorial Day weekend. Take a stroll over there if you're in New York City. My second thing is, Ashley, like you, Brooke couldn't get enough of the Halston show on Netflix and wanted to do a deeper dive. So if you're looking for a deeper dive and and a little bit of context, there's a documentary which we found called Battle of Versailles. came out a few years ago and it sort of tells the story from the perspective of the models who walked in the show and other people who were, were present at Versailles for that the big battle between the American and French designers. It's very short, it's under an hour, but it gives you a little sort of, as I say, backstage look at what went on and what really went down. My other two things I would recommend this weekend, just remembered, is this goes to be a nostalgic moment. And if you're looking for summer music, they're both oldies, but to remind everyone, Bob Dylan is turning 80. So it's always a chance to throw on some Bob Dylan. But more importantly, it's the 50th anniversary this month of Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On. So always a good summer soundtrack. Wow. 50 years. Who would have thought? Yeah. Mercy, mercy me. What's your favorite song of summer so far, Michael? My favorite song of summer so far? I know it's not like the most cheerful song, 
Okay. But it's a song that's just come out. And I find myself listening to it over and over because I just find it very beautiful and mesmerizing. It's the Billie Eilish song, Your Power. You love Billie Eilish. I think you're going to end up at a Billie Eilish concert, Michael. That's going to be like your first post-pandemic show. I'm a late comer to everything, you know, years ago, everyone. Always, but I just thought, I just find it, it's took a walk yesterday. I had it on over and over again. I just love listening to her voice. How about you? Oh, I've been listening to my favorite Heim song. I mean, one of my favorite Heim songs, which is Summer Girl, surprisingly, not surprisingly. Jesse, play it up, okay? LA on the mind, I can't breathe. There when I close my eyes, so hard to reach. Your smile's turning to crying, it's the same release. And you always know, and you always know. To our partner for this episode, Veuve Clicquot La Grande Dame. To learn more or purchase La Grande Dame 2012, visit veuvclicquot.com. V-E-U-V-E-C-L-I-C-Q-U-O-T.com. Michael, on that full note, will you please read us out? I would be delighted to. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, enjoy your holiday weekend if you're here in the States. And be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us.